I can't think of any place I'd rather be than right here tonight. It's a beautiful evening, a sala puja. Uh, very uh, congenial, delightful monastic community uh, that will be here for the Vasa. Great group of guests and visitors staying here. Day visitors coming. And uh, here to just practice Dhamma, um, reflect on the teachings of the Buddha, uh, and to be with each other uh, to share this. Mm. What a what a great opportunity. And uh, Asala Puja, I think pretty much everybody who's here would know that uh, it's the recognition of the Buddha's first discourse, uh, the Dhammachaka Sutta, which we chanted uh, parts of tonight, excerpts from it, most of most of the the meat of the of the teachings in Pali and English. It's a nice combination. So we not only get the uh, Pali teachings, but a, f- a flavor of of what they mean uh, for those of us who don't speak fluent Pali. And just to uh, remember, reflect on this um, core teaching, uh, the first discourse that the Buddha taught uh, a a couple months after uh, his um, awakening, uh, teaching this discourse to the uh, five ascetics who had been his his, comrades, if you will, in, in the search. Uh, and the Buddha's having discovered it and bringing the teaching back to these uh, five uh, men who had become, uh, who were to become his disciples uh, uh, with the culmination of this discourse. And just the profundity of this particular exposition, this first teaching, that laid out the, uh, the path, the Four Noble Truths with the Eightfold Path. Uh, it's, a, it's a teaching that's often referred to as the elephant's footprint in that the teaching of the Four Noble Truths contains all of the uh, teachings in some form or another, all of the teachings that the Buddha subsequently uh, passed on can be fit into some way uh, within the Four Noble Truths. It's the basic core, the basic structure, the outline uh, of where we can go and how to do it. In a way, it's a, you know, we get involved so much in the, uh, the teachings, uh, the various teachings uh, throughout the, the, the Sutta Pitaka, the, the, the collection of, of all of the Buddha's teachings that we you know, were able to 
have recorded essentially and passed down uh, through the through the years. Um, and um, it's it's we get involved with those and study them in detail and reflect on them in detail. Uh, but every now and then it's important to zoom out a bit to this broad teaching that really sets the, uh, the basis for all of the rest of the teachings uh, with some context. But on a night like this, you know, many people have come together and um, I think it's really important to just, yeah, as I say, zoom out a bit back to the, uh, the broad perspective. What, you know, where are the teachings going? What is it that we're doing with them? Uh, and uh, it can be very inspiring to do that. I find it very inspiring anyway. And the Buddha kind of, in, in other teachings, not right in this specific one, uh, kind of lays out, in a sense, a description of the, of the first noble truth, the, the truth of dukkha, the truth of unsatisfactoriness or um, suffering. But, uh, when he, he remarks uh, in reflection about samsara and um, the vastness of what we find ourselves in and lost in, uh, it's a lovely, stark uh, phrase of truth uh, that he that he utters when he when he says, "From an inconceivable beginning, beings have been wandering and roaming on endlessly, um, obstructed by ignorance and fettered by craving." And that pretty much sums up, uh, sums up many of our lives until we at least uh, start to pick up this teaching. If we're so uh, fortunate to do that, most of the people in the world don't even know of the existence of, of this teaching. And along with the rest of us, um, hopefully some of us to a, a slightly lesser degree, uh, wandering on aimlessly. Obstructed by ignorance, hindered by craving, fettered by craving. That kind of sums up the basic problem that we're obstructed by our ignorance. We can't see clearly, so we keep on wandering, making the same mistakes, uh, not seeing clearly enough to find a way out of the cycles of, of suffering that we keep on getting ourselves into. And it's all motivated by this fetter, this ball and chain of craving. Uh, this underlying tendency towards wanting or not wanting, uh, or just general overall confusion that's this ball and chain that keeps us anchored, uh, fettered, fettered by craving. So in a sense, this is you know, the beginning of, of the teaching, uh, to recognize that this is the first noble truth, the, the truth of, of dukkha, the truth of suffering. Um, and as you all probably know, you know the, all the Four Noble Truths have a, have a duty associated with them, and the duty of this First Noble Truth, this truth of suffering, is to fully understand it. This is the problem. This is the, in the medical model uh, approach to the Buddhist teaching, this is the diagnosis, you know, the, the diagnosis of... Uh, yeah, there is suffering. And of course, the second 
uh, noble truth of the cause of suffering uh, is, the, is the cause of the illness. So you have the illness, the diagnosis, and then the cause. And the third noble truth being the, um, the fact that uh, that's the pro- it's the prognosis, the fact that there can be an escape from this illness, that there can be a cure to this illness. That's a good prognosis. And then the fourth is, of course, the, the treatment, the cure, uh, the path uh, leading to uh, the end of Dukkha, the Eightfold Path. But the first noble truth is this one that we have to fully understand um, before we can move on. I, we, you know, we want to jump to number three. We want to jump to the cessation of dukkha uh, in the shortest possible way. But uh, in a sense, there's really no shortcut. Uh, we can't avoid actually having to fully understand dukkha to begin with uh, before we can move uh, into abandoning the cause, uh, developing the path, and realizing uh, the, uh, the goal, realizing the ending of, of, of dukkha. We have to fully understand. And it's just, it's a kind of heart-rending when, um, you know, at least when I look back at my life before, uh, before stumbling on the Buddha's path, moving into the Buddha's path, uh, just the ways that we try to avoid this exploration of dukkha, this exploration of suffering, the the knee-jerk reaction to uh, find distraction uh, when things don't feel right, to find a a remedy in, in the world of the senses, sensory experience, sense pleasures, or in the realm of uh, becoming uh, somebody important uh, with a, a clear role in life, whether it's child, parent, sibling, or our job, our relationships, uh, trying to find a, an identity within the realms of the world. Um, and then in our moments of difficulty, despair, trying to just escape from it all through all the escape measures that we can possibly muster. Uh, Because we don't want to take the effort, make the effort, and possibly feel some pain uh, by looking squarely at at dukkha in the face uh, to fully understand it, uh, to fully penetrate it. So we keep on dodging dodging around uh, through our lives. And so, you know, when you listen to all the promises of the world, uh, the the ways that we're told to find happiness, uh, constantly repeated and blaring at us from all various news media, uh, advertisements, uh, all the messages from the world that we, that we look at and say, here, this is the way to happiness. Do this, do that, get involved with this. Uh, buy this, um, become this, um, pursue this. Uh, this, will give you, this will give you happiness. 
And there's all the, the course ways that uh, are pretty obvious to most of us that we've learned uh, don't really do it. Uh, and then there's also the more subtle ways, um, promises of, uh, you know, happiness forever in the perfect relationship or uh, even developing skillful ways of, of, of being in the world that bring wholesome results. Um, uh, these are good things in terms of producing good conditions. Uh, and we have to look at them in the long term, too, to see if it's the full deal. I remember myself just buying in, buying into all of those messages and trying my best to find that sense of stability and happiness with all the, the promises that were... Uh, being put out there as ways to do that. And, you know, with a few unfortunate exceptions, for the most part, I was able to fairly skillfully do it and negotiate through and develop a fairly wholesome set of uh, activities in life. Uh, and as I got a little bit older, feeling, you know, a little more skillful in it. Um, and pretty much doing, following the script uh, and doing what I thought would bring uh, ultimate happiness or at least the best that can be had uh, in this world. And slowly, slowly realizing or thinking, you know, after developing skillful means, skillful methods, good relationships, good livelihood, feeling the benefits of that in, in sort of its fleeting way, and then feeling kind of, okay, now what? And that sense of uh, dis-ease, slight dissatisfaction, something's not quite in tune, uh, even though I'm doing the best I can following these messages, um, something's not quite right doing that for a good 30 years at least, or at least the last 10 of those 30 years in, in my 20s to 30s with, you know, uh, my adult activities, and just doing what one needs to do. And then it wasn't until somewhere around the age of 30 or so that I stumbled on the, uh, the Buddhist teachings and thought, ah, okay. This is what I've been missing. This is, this is pointing out in very clear teaching uh, why I'm not experiencing full commit, or full, uh, a full um, experience, a full experience of satisfaction, of uh, you know, a, a repleteness that I'm looking for. And essentially, it was this teaching uh, on the uh, exposition of uh, the Four Noble Truths that made all of a sudden a whole lot of sense. And here was somebody who was saying plainly uh, and clearly, you know, look at the facts. You know, it's just it's uh, what you've been what you've been pursuing, the way you've been pursuing it, as skillful as it might be and as sometimes unskillful as it was, um, it's, not the, it's not the answer. 
uh, you won't ever find an end uh, to the, the, the dukkha, the suffering, by following the worldly ways. And um, eye-opening, you know, very moving, uh, coming across this teaching in general and, and this specific exposition of the Noble Truths. Uh, uh, I think I can speak probably for many of us here, a life-changing discovery. So this first Noble Truth has to be fully understood, fully penetrated, uh, and uh, accepted uh, that uh, this is where we find ourselves, and this is what we've, from that cosmological viewpoint, this is what we've been doing since beginningless time, since uh, no, no discernible beginning. And as the teaching goes, we chanted tonight that various descriptions of, of this dukkha, this first noble truth, essentially boils down to uh, the five khandhas as affected by clinging. So our experience of body and mind and holding tightly to it and looking for this kind of ultimate satisfaction in our bodies and in our minds, uh, all the experiences uh, that we call me or who I am. Uh, when they're clung to with a sense of identity uh, and a wish for this kind of fulfillment uh, in that form, uh, then that eventually leads in some way, shape, or form to this experience of dukkha. And then kind of following on that, um, the second noble truth uh, is the cause of dukkha. Um, what leads us to this clinging uh, to ourselves, uh, our bodies and our minds, uh, uh, is this craving that is looking for satisfaction within this body-mind experience. Uh, that's the driving force that uh, moves us into this form of clinging uh, to uh, ourselves, our sense of self, craving for the sense pleasures, for the becoming, and, and for the annihilation of things when they get difficult. Uh, the second noble truth, with the duty that we need to examine that force of mind uh, uh, quite clearly uh, and to the point where we want to abandon it, the duty related to that second noble truth, abandoning the cause of dukkha this craving, tanha. Again, it has to be fully understood uh, and the cause has to be fully experienced uh, so that we have this motivation to find a different way, find something that will lead us out of this craving and clinging. So that's the, the answer to being a being, roaming and, and wandering in this samsara, obstructed by ignorance. This is the, the clinging to this body and mind as who we are and uh, as a refuge point, and uh, ending, uh, releasing ourselves from the fetter of craving, uh, which is this driving force uh, to keep us uh, moving.
moving for satisfaction in that which is ultimately unsatisfactory, to abandon that. And then the third noble truth of the cessation um, of suffering, that that's a possibility, we have that um, as a, a promise if we follow the path completely. Uh, the Buddha experienced it, he discovered it himself. And this discovery in his experience kind of burst that, um, that darkness uh, that he himself also was caught in until his, until his enlightenment. And in that final penetration, uh, final release, uh, with the complete abandoning of, of craving and the uh, understanding full penetration of, of clinging and dukkha, um, it, it, it opened the door. The door was opened, and he uh, realized that uh, uh, the path that he had been following uh, prior to his um, time as a samana, as a seeker, uh, was not the path, and, and that he had discovered uh, the path through his own efforts over uh, six years of seeking uh, and practicing on his own and not giving up. Uh, he broke through the veil of, of, of the darkness of samsara and was completely and finally liberated. And then he expounded this Eightfold Path, uh, which is the vehicle, uh, it's, the, uh, it's the medicine, the cure, uh, and it's complete. Uh, what he discovered was a complete path. Um, and it's a very neat system because the Four Noble Truths, the, the Fourth Noble Truth is of course the Eightfold Path, but within the Eightfold Path, the very first factor is, is right view, which contains the Four Noble Truths. So it, it contain, both aspects contain uh, each other within it. And if any of those path factors is missing, then it doesn't have the ability to take one completely to uh, liberation. There's many good things that come from it, but all eight factors have to be there, have to be present. Uh, and the Buddha actually re remarks in different, uh, some different ways in the, in the teachings that uh, if there are other paths that are proclaimed to lead to full uh, liberation, um, then they must include all, eightfold, all the eightfold path, all the eight factors. Uh, and actually, um, he also remarked in one teaching that I remember that, the, that actually that doesn't exist uh, outside of the Buddha's dispensation, outside of his teachings. At that time, it didn't exist in the world. But it was clever because he didn't come out and say, my way is the only way, but more just like, well, if there is a way to full liberation other than this, it must contain this, uh, the, uh, the Eightfold Path, which also includes the Four Noble Truths. So, and this is the path that has to be fully developed. That's the duty uh, of the Fourth Noble Truth, to be fully developed so that the ending of dukkha uh, can be experienced, can be realized. So that's kind of a 
little brief summary of, of what we chanted in, tonight in, in the Buddha's first teaching. There's another really wonderful uh, different take on, on the uh, Four Noble Truths that comes from uh, a, a Thai Ajahn uh, from, uh, he was born in the late 1800s, 1880s, and, and uh, lived, I think, almost to be about 95. His name was Ajahn Dun. And he was an early disciple of Ajahn Man. So practiced mostly in the uh, uh, first part and middle part of uh, the uh, 20th century. I think he died in the 1980s at some point. But anyway, he wasn't extremely well known, but he was extremely well respected uh, and was known for the straightforwardness and simplicity of his teachings. He didn't expound a whole lot of Dhamma talks that were you know, written down or recorded in any way. Um, more taught through example and through uh, discussions and, and uh, conversations with people, questions, answers, uh, that kind of format rather than the, the formal teaching. Um, he has some real gems which people might be interested in looking at. I think there's probably some copies, I know there's copies in the library of, and maybe even in the free distribution room of, uh, of his teachings, um, uh, Gifts He Left Behind is the name of the small booklet. It's a real gem. But anyway, one of those teachings is around the Four Noble Truths. Um, and I'll see if I can remember the, the phrasing, but uh, he, he rephrases them in just simple one-liners, uh, the Four Noble Truths, in that... Um, and he doesn't do them in the exact order. So the, the, this second noble truth comes first in that uh, uh, the, the, mind, the mind moving outside itself is the cause of dukkha. The result of uh, the mind moving outside uh, the result is dukkha. So that's the first noble truth. The second noble truth is the cause, you know, and the, uh, the result is the first noble truth of dukkha. Uh, moving outside, uh, going outside. And then the next uh, two lines are uh, the mind seeing the mind is the path leading to the end of dukkha. The mind seeing the mind and the result of the mind seeing the mind is the cessation of dukkha. So two aspects, the mind moving out, uh, the mind going out, uh, and uh, the mind uh, seeing itself, uh, the mind going out being the cause of dukkha and the mind seeing itself, experiencing, knowing itself, uh, is the uh, cause for the end of du- ending of dukkha. And it's a really lovely way of uh, thinking about this, reflecting on, on the cause and the cessation of dukkha uh, from, the a, 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 from the aspect of, of movement of mind. Because all of this craving uh, uh, that we uh, know as the cause of dukkha, the, the forms of tanha, is this movement outwards from the clear knowing base of, of the pure mind, uh, moving to an object to get involved with it, 
uh, greed, hatred, delusion, steering the mind outwards uh, from its pure, pristine uh, knowing, uh, the quality of knowing, uh, unadulterated, steering it, pulling it out uh, to the realm of the senses, sight, sounds, tastes, uh, smells, uh, tactile sensations, uh, pulling it out into the realm, realm of senses, looking for gratification, looking for uh, a way out of uh, difficulty, uh, a distraction, uh, sensual pleasure. And also the, the mental aspect. We think of the mind as something that's inside of us, but from the, from the aspect of, or perspective of uh, the mind, the still mind, uh, it's also a movement out. We're moving out to thoughts or moving out to emotions. Uh, the mind is moving out to um, those kinds of experiences, uh, mental experiences. Even though we think of them as contained inside, it's moving, moving out to them, away from its clear, quiet, peaceful, alert, uh, fully, fully present, uh, knowing quality moving out into the experience of the six sense bases. So this is the, the cause of dukkha. And when we do that, when our mind leaves its uh, quiet, clear presence, uh, knowing quality, then we uh, experience suffering in some form or another, eventually. And then the mind seeing itself, the mind seeing the mind, uh, being that not moving out, that, that non-entanglement uh, with the, the uh, sense bases, uh, including uh, the mind activities, including the objects of mind. So that very uh, clear description that uh, Ajahn Chah also, Lumpur Chah, uses as his fundamental insight that he, he picked up from Ajahn Man of seeing the mind separate from the mind objects. So there's still the flow of mind objects, all the things that come through the mind, but separate from that is this knowing quality, this awareness that can clearly see all of these objects in their true nature. And this is the path, essentially the path leading to cessation of dukkha. Of course, the, the Eightfold Path in, in its full description from the Buddha is all of those are supports for uh, this ability to be able to uh, separate the mind from the mind objects. It's, it's the nuts and bolts of, of that being able to uh, have the mind seeing the mind. But I've always really enjoyed that kind of alternate interpretation of, of the basic Four Noble Truths. It's quite profound. So this is the, this is the, the teaching that started it all uh, and broke open the uh, possibility of uh, liberation from our wandering endlessly in samsara. What, the, uh, what we chanted tonight didn't include the whole, the whole sutta, which kind of then 
branches off from the actual teaching that the Buddha gave. Um, and to the description first, I think, of uh, Kondanya, one of the disciples, uh, having made the breakthrough. Um, and uh, had a glimpse of, of the goal himself, the entering the stream through his uh, realization uh, that uh, everything that arises has the nature to pass away. He realized that upon the culmination of the Buddha's uh, exposition and became the first being other than the Buddha to establish uh, himself solidly in, in the practice, Dhamma practice, irreversibly. He didn't complete, completely realize the goal at that time, but uh, became um, uh, secure in the path. So that's uh, mentioned in the teaching as well. And the, and, um, the reaction, and this basically set the, the teaching solidly in the world. Um, the fact that somebody actually, other than the Buddha, was able to understand it. Because the Buddha, at first, was disinclined uh, to go anywhere af- with his teaching, or with teaching after he had his realization. Uh, as uh, the request for the Dhamma talk this evening uh, e- explained, you know, that it, it took uh, the Brahma god, Sahampati, to come down to the Buddha and notice his dis- disinclination to, to teach. Uh, and to say, uh, uh, excuse me, <laughs> venerable sir, um, uh, there are beings with just a little dust in their eyes and they can uh, understand this. They, they would be able to um, penetrate uh, to the truth if, if you would please teach. And then the Buddha surveyed the world system with his uh, divine eye, divine ear, his, his ability to encompass minds uh, in his own mind, and um, was able to see, oh yes, there are some beings with just a little dust in their eyes, and decided to go ahead and teach. And did so, Kondanya entered the stream, and uh, set resolutely the, the teaching uh, into uh, uh, the existence, uh, into uh, in started the dispensation that's lasted for more than 2,500 years now, and when that was set in, in motion, uh, the, the wonderful description uh, of it being transmitted up through the various realms of celestial beings, starting from the earthbound devas all the way up to the Brahma realm, uh, very high god, realm of gods, uh, and uh, that the word spread, that the teachings had been, the dispensation has started, um, and uh, you know the description of that is so beautiful and so moving, and uh, whenever we chant it in that full uh, full aspect of it, including that part of it, it just pretty much never fails to send chills up my spine. Um, it's uh, incredible, really, what uh, what happened. Uh, there at that time with that teaching. And, you know, as the description goes, you know, it's uh, the 10,000-fold world quaked and trembled and shook. And the 
boundless radiance, sublime radiance, surpassing the power of the devas, appeared in the world. So greater than any of the uh, celestial beings' powers or radiance, this teaching uh, had its effect, had its uh, reverberations through through all of our, uh, our of our all of our experience. And here it is still today. Uh, you know, some people say that the um, the teachings, the world is in decline, and that you know the true teachings are on the verge of disappearing. And you know, it looks like you know there are sometimes signs that that you know may be heading in that direction. And all things are impermanent, even the dispensation of the Buddha in the world. Uh, but I have to say that I still think that the the true teachings are here. Um, and that we have access to them, and that they are still having profound results uh, in the world um, if we just uh, tune ourselves into that uh, and uh, just feel incredibly fortunate and um, privileged to, to be able to be part of that. It's, you know, it's my refuge now. It's... Uh, it's like you know having been on a a boat on the sea without a without a rudder or an anchor, just kind of floating, drifting, uh, and all of a sudden you have your rudder to steer you when there's movement, uh, and your anchor to keep you keep you in place and keep you keep you grounded uh, when times are still, when your when your boat isn't moving. The Dhamma is your, your anchor, it's my anchor my, and my rudder. Keep me moving in the right direction. And, yeah, I just can't, uh, can't imagine uh, ever wanting to be pulled away from it. Uh, no matter what comes along, there's lots of work left to do here, but, but uh, it just it feels I feel incredibly fortunate uh, to have stumbled on this teaching with an incredible amount of gratitude to the, our teachers, Lumpur Pasano, his teacher, Ajahn Chah, uh, all of the others in this dispensation uh, that uh, keep, us, keep us moored uh, and uh, following a path that uh, the Buddha described in the, in this first teaching. So I'll leave it for uh, that reflection tonight. <laughs>